Blaze On Demand. This is Ben Weingarten of The Blaze Books, and today I'm joined by Andrew McCarthy, author of the new book, Islam and Free Speech. Andrew is a former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York and a contributing editor at National Review and columnist at PJ Media. He's authored several great books, all of which I recommend, including Faithless Execution, Building the Political Case for Obama's Impeachment, and The Grand Jihad, How Islam and the Left Sabotage America. Thanks for joining us, Andy. Ben, my pleasure. How do you respond to the assertion of our president that, quote, the future must not belong to those who slander the prophet of Islam, unquote? I think it's a peculiar thing for a United States president uh, in a in a tradition where we reject uh, establishment of religion and where there's been uh, no shortage of uh, I, I I really have to say hostility uh, to establish religions in the West uh, to put a thumb on the scale uh, that way on behalf of a belief system that is animating uh, unapologetic enemies of the United States. Uh, I, I, I just thought it was a very peculiar thing for Obama to say, but then, you know, I thought his entire policy in this regard all along has been peculiar. Your book touches on the principles of Sharia law in some depth. You speak to blasphemy and slander laws, and there are even, even beyond blasphemy and slander, restrictions generally on criticism of Islam, if you actually read through books like Reliance of the Traveler and other interpretations of Sharia law. So all that being said, speak a little bit to the role of speech in Islam, and when President Obama says something like the quote we just read... Is he, in effect, enforcing Sharia speech codes? Well, to take the end uh, at the beginning, he is doing that in effect. Now, you know, whether that's his actual intention or not, uh, I, don't, I don't want to read his mind. I think his policies are damaging enough. But I think, you know, what people need to understand is that we're dealing in a, in a civilizational sense with two different ways of looking at the world. So there is the American and Western way, but, but let's talk specifically about the United States, which is a, a framework of governance that's based on uh, essentially facilitating individual liberty. The idea that what makes a society flourish is if you unleash the, uh, the, free, the freedom, the entrepreneurship, the uh, creative impulses of free people, uh, and let them flourish with minimal uh, interference from the government. And uh, along those lines, there is a very strong tradition of both free speech and religious liberty, including uh, not just free exercise of religion, but, but uh, the uh, freedom to believe whatever it is that you, uh, that you wish to believe, or even not believe, if that's the case. Uh, so... That's the, you know, that's the governing framework that we're, uh, that we come from. And then you have to look at uh, this different part of the world where the governing framework is not uh, freedom, it's really submission. The idea is it's, a, it's an authoritarian 
system that doesn't recognize, at least in its classical interpretation, uh, a separation of uh, religious principles from political life. Uh, and it's based on an idea that uh, God gave society a, and God gave mankind a framework which is the perfect framework for human flourishing, the, the path that life is supposed to be lived under. And if you accept that as a given, and you accept that there's no division between uh, religion and politics, between the, the sacred and uh, you know, day-to-day civic life, I think you can understand that it would be taken as a grave offense to deviate from the belief system and to deviate from the path uh, that has been prescribed as the way that God wants human life lived. And as a result, you know, you have two different ways of looking at the world. Uh, and what I, what I never understand with respect to the West's view of the Middle East um, in particular is that it's not that they in the Middle East don't understand individual liberty and don't understand the Western way. They understand it perfectly well. They just think that their way is superior. Uh, and no amount of uh, Western pressure to change is going to alter that. It's, uh, you know, if there's going to be change or reform, it has to come from within. So, I, you know, I think the, the, the animus that you have and the, the, uh, the real big dividing point that you have is just that you have two very different, uh, highly opposed ways of looking at the world. And the way speech plays into this becomes obvious once you have that framework. In the freedom system, where the idea is unleashing human ingenuity with the idea that that would be what, what causes a flourishing life, um, you have to have a free market idea of ideas, and you have to have a robust exchange of information and opinion, even provocative opinion, uh, because that's what gives us the best information, that's what sharpens arguments, it's what leads to the best policy, and it's what leads to uh, the benefits that, uh, that we get, whether it's economically or socially or what have you. And on the other hand, in an authoritarian system where you've already decided ahead of time that you have all the answers, that you have the perfect framework for human flourishing, uh, the speech, instead of becoming a great benefit, becomes a threat, uh, because if it's, if it's allowed to be free speech, uh, then it can be very suggestive of ideas that are uh, not only heresy, but are, are, are very dangerous in the sense that they, um, that they contain ideas that can have the society come unglued. So in an authoritarian system, the most important thing is, uh, is social cohesion, even if it's enforced social cohesion. And any speech that could undermine that uh, is treated in a, a very repressive way because of the threat that it poses to the governing system. 
given the sort of clash of civilizations, uh, to use the Huntington uh, theory, when it comes to Sharia law and sort of the theopolitical ideology of Islam versus the pluralistic, liberal ideas to which we believe in and, and which form our nation, what do you make of the reactions on people on both the left and the right to the Garland jihadist attack, which coincidentally occurred soon after this book was published? Yeah, you'd almost think that Pam Geller was on uh, my payroll or maybe a encounter books payroll, which I hope is more flush than my payroll. <laughs> um, yeah, I, you know, I, I think when I think about uh, what, what happened with Pam and the others down in Texas, and you think about what happened in Paris, and you think about, you know, a number of these other incidents, the unfortunate thing about it is that we don't, this public conversation about speech and the threat to it always arises in the context of speech that a lot of people regard as over the top. So, you know, for myself, I, I'm, not a, uh, I'm not a fan of gratuitous insult. I think, you know, it needs, it, it has its place. Uh, in a free society, and I, you obviously can't, uh, if, if you want to have a robust uh, marketplace of ideas, you can't repress it. Um, but at the same time, you know, I know how offended I felt and a lot of other people felt uh, uh, because of things like Serrano's uh, Kiss Christ, which, you know, was obviously an effort to be very uh, provocative and insulting toward, uh, toward what end, uh, I suppose, is uh, debatable. But my point is that when you have, you know, over-the-top insulting type speech in order to make a point, you'll get a lot of people who are um, adherents and strong believers in free speech who nevertheless will say, you know, would we really be less as a society, would it really hurt us all that much to ban the kind of speech that is simply like fighting words almost, which has always been uh, an exception to free speech? Is it, you know, is it really necessary to have uh, or to allow expression which seems to have as its major uh, or at least one of its major points uh, to be insulting or uh, or uh, needlessly provocative to people. And, you know, I think the unfortunate thing about that is that it misses the point which people like Keller and others have been trying to raise, which is that it's not just important to defend free speech under all circumstances, but the threat that we're talking about has a lot to, has to do with a lot more than simply, you know, whether you can draw uh, a cartoon that's sure to provoke the ire of people, um, or whether you can do things that, that you know anybody with common sense would regard as uh, provocative and, or insulting. Uh, a lot of the principles that we're talking about here, uh, in the classical interpretation, and you know, look, there's a there's robust debate uh, within the Islamic community about. Uh, about Sharia and what its role ought to be uh, in the public square. 
But in the classical interpretation, which is the one that we're most concerned about, uh, the threat isn't just to artistic representations that are provocative or insulting. It's to artistic representation, period. You know, uh, representations of animate life on uh, this interpretation are forbidden because they are deemed to be sacrilegious because they uh, imitate the creative act of, of Allah. Um, and when we're talking about, you know, forget about artistic representation now, let's just talk about speech. Um, sure, it's well known that um, speech that's uh, forbidden in that system includes, obviously, uh, things that are uh, intentionally derisive or insulting about the, the belief system or the prophet. But the prohibition on speech is not at all limited to that. It's really thoroughgoing, and it would ban any kind of speech that constitutes an examination of uh, the belief system or the doctrine, including, you know, an examination of, of Scripture and, and basically reading it aloud and, and reading it accurately. It's, uh, it would ban speech that is even accurate about, uh, about doctrinal principles on the ground that anything that could sow discord into the community and uh, anything that could be deemed to be um, uh, to, to cast the belief system in a bad light is something that has to be forbidden. So there's a lot more at stake here than just whether you can draw a cartoon or not. And it's unfortunate, I think, that when this, when the only time we ever seem to have this discussion is when it's provoked by the kind of speech that even uh, advocates of free speech, strong advocates of free speech, are uncomfortable with, because it, it really takes away from our ability to grasp how really thorough the threats of free speech is. So in other words, tactically, you have an issue with the fact that only when quote-unquote provocative speech draws a reaction, that that's the only time that we're talking about these issues rather than all the time as the Islamic supremacist ideology spreads covertly and overtly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, you know, look, let's, let's, let's make a comparison, which, is, which I actually talk about in the book. Um, you have the contest that, uh, that Pamela Geller organized down in Houston, and that got, you know, waves and waves of publicity, and some of it was the right kind of publicity, some of it actually focused in on the threat to speech, and a lot of it became an attack on the people who organized the conference, and it almost became a situation where um, Pamela Geller, who should have been incidental to the story, became the story in the, in the eyes of, of many critics. Um, take that for what it's worth. What I talk about in the book is the fact that the United States government, particularly the State Department under Hillary Clinton, combined with a block of uh, Islamist government, uh, which is known as the uh, Organization of Islamic Cooperation, 57 uh, government unit, uh, to agree to a United Nations Human Rights Resolution, Resolution 1618, 
which would make illegal uh, any speech that could be deemed to incite hostility to religion, which is slightly uh, uh, unconstitutional under our First Amendment, and which could be read and will be read and will be interpreted uh, to ban any speech that's critical of religious belief, whether it's true or not, if the belief that we're talking about is is uh, Islam, and if there is, uh, you know, enough agitation by uh, Islamist governments around the world. So, you know, here you have a situation where our own government, which is responsible for defending the First Amendment, agrees to a U.N. resolution that would completely undermine the First Amendment. And most people who I tell that story to, their jaws drop because they've never heard it before. So here you have a real threat to speech, um, which is essentially orchestrated by our own government that gets absolutely zero press attention. And then you have this incident down in Garland uh, that does get press attention, but the press attention immediately turns into whether, uh, you know, whether Pam Geller is a net plus or a net minus um, in, in terms of the public debate over free speech, rather than, you know, let's focus on the public debate about free speech, which is the important thing. Since you mentioned UN Human Rights Resolution 1618, which then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton zealously and enthusiastically defended, can you see a tie between her support of that resolution and then our government, and in particular, it's alleged that Hillary Clinton actually told one of the parents of a fallen Navy SEAL in Benghazi, saying that we would get the filmmaker of the YouTube video, Innocence of Muslims. Do you see that being Hillary Clinton using the full force of the federal government to, in effect, impose, again, Sharia speech laws? I do, and I think it's even more frightening than uh, than that, because in yet another speech, uh, you know, let's put 1618 aside for a second. Um, she recognizes, because there was some protest from, you know, knuckle-dragging right-wingers like me, that, uh, you know, this was a flat violation of the First Amendment. Um, even she has to acknowledge that, you know, there's, there's profound First Amendment problems with this. Uh, so in a speech where she addressed some of those problems, uh, she came out and said that, you know, if basically if legal remedies won't work in the United States to enforce this kind of a protocol, what we would then have to do is get back to what she called old-fashioned methods like peer pressure and shaming. So she not only wants to undermine the legal protections of the First Amendment, she raises the frightening specter of the government using extra-legal pressures against American citizens in order to suppress speech where, you know, their legal protections are supposed to shield them from government action uh, that is suppressive of free speech. So it's not just that she's talking about using, you know, the normal government uh, arsenal of legal relief if somebody does something that's against the law. She recognizes that this, in in some level, she recognizes that this can't, the kind of speech she wants to ban can't be banned. So since she can't use the law to ban it, she wants to use 
extra legal forms of pressure. Uh, when I was a mafia prosecutor, we used to call that extortion. Um, I guess, you know, when, when the government does it, we're going to, you know, we'll euphemize it, and it's, it's uh, you know, old-fashioned peer pressure. But it's precisely the same thing. And we all know that an oppressive government can make life very, very difficult for people. I mean, look, conservative groups have seen it from the beginning of the Obama administration. You know, what's gone on with the IRS and the, uh, the, the abuse of the federal bureaucracy to target it against uh, political opponents of the president has really been something that ought to frighten people. And it, ought to, it ought to frighten not only uh, you know, people who are, on the, uh, who are confronted by the pointy end of the sphere, namely conservatives, it ought to frighten every American who cares about not allowing the government to use its bureaucracy and its processes as a punishment uh, and an oppression of Americans. Because, you know, the, the, not every president uh, in the future, hopefully, is going to be a liberal Democrat. And if you're going to allow government to do this sort of thing, it's not just conservatives who, who have a stake. Uh, in, in making sure that doesn't happen. So, so just to be clear, then Hillary is now has two strikes against her. She's she's guilty of extortion and then also RICO violations as well. Is is that right? <laughs> well, you know, look, I think she had three strikes against her before she came to that. So, <laughs> um, but but uh, you, you know, I think the if you're referring to the, the Clinton Foundation, uh, in addition to uh, you know the speech yep. agenda that we're talking about. Uh, you know, we we could spend another day talking about that. That's a that's a real difficult problem. And you know, by and by, I I find it amazing that the administration, uh, given what the theory that they had uh, or have in prosecuting Menendez is, uh, you know, this business about how you you know you you allow yourself to be influenced in the exercise of your government authority by lavish donations from various supplicants. Uh, the only difference I see at the moment, uh, or the key difference I see at the moment, between the Menendez case and the Clinton Foundation is that the money coming into the Clinton Foundation dwarfs uh, what the Justice Department says is a tissue in the Menendez case that they've indicted one of the key takeaways from this broadside, if I were writing up some crib notes, is that in a, basically, and this isn't said enough, I don't think, cartoons don't cause jihadist attacks or burning of a Koran doesn't cause a jihadist attack or Salman Rushdie writing a book doesn't cause a jihadist attack, but jihadist ideology is what animates jihadists and causes jihadist attacks. Why does it seem that the national security establishment on both the left and the right, and you've seen the security establishment up close, why is it that the establishment obfuscates on this point? Well, because they're, you know, they're, they're victims of political correctness. The, the national security establishment is not an independent actor in government. It's a part of, it's a part of the, the governing power, and that's whichever elected administration is in power. You know, I saw this when I was a prosecutor with the infamous wall, uh, where you know we set up internal 
regulations within the Justice Department that essentially stopped the national security side of the FBI's house from cooperating with the law enforcement side of the FBI's house. Everybody who was a professional law enforcement person who day-to-day did law enforcement work knew that that was truly nuts. The, the idea that you wouldn't share information and that you would intentionally prevent yourself from getting the full uh, threat mosaic that, that you were responsible for protecting the country uh, with respect to uh, anybody with common sense knew that that was crazy. Yet, uh, high-ranking people and people throughout the national security establishment uh, vigorously defended the wall as the right thing to do, and they defended it right up until the 9-11 attacks. And, and indeed, uh, the FISA court uh, even tried to re-erect the wall after the Justice Department took it down after the 9-11 attacks. So, um, you know, the... The national security agencies and community within government um, has a lot of people who, you know, do their their day-to-day as far as their job is concerned is the same no matter what the administration is. But the political office holders uh, and the people who make policy are creatures of whatever administration is in power. And... Their agenda is not necessarily national security. Their agenda is whatever the administration's policy agenda is. So I'm not at all surprised to see a disturbing amount of agreement within the national security community and government, uh, agreement with policies of the Obama administration that seem to undermine national security, because I don't, I've never looked at the national security community as, you know, kind of an independent, uh, altruistic actor in government. I think at the policy level, it's, uh, it's just an arm of the administration. You write in Islam and Free Speech that as night follows day, when Muslim populations surge, so does support for jihadism and the Sharia supremacist ideology that catalyzes it. And you also write... I'm quoting, a a conquest ideology takes well-meaning accommodation as weakness and always demands more. So with that backdrop, and given that we've seen mass Muslim immigration by way of refugee resettlement and also normal immigration into America from a, a disproportionate percentage of Muslim populations, how can a free and pluralistic society like America counter Islamic supremacist ideology and more broadly survive an ideology that takes advantage of our freedom and pluralism to perpetuate its power? Well, it's not the first ideology that's ever done this. Uh, and, you know, we, we, the doctrine of uh, Soviet communism was, uh, you know, ultimately not just as the complete and extensive undermining of it, but when and if, uh, or if and when, finally necessary, the violent overthrow of the United States uh, or the United States government. So it's not like this is the first time that we've dealt with a conquest ideology uh, that that seeks, uh, you know, to supplant the West with uh, with its own uh, vision of what society should be. Um, we've had this kind of a problem before. The difference is Soviet ideology never traveled under the banner 
of religious liberty. And it was never the kind of squeamishness about examining it that we have now. Um, and, you know, the, the best way to combat it is to get over that squeamishness. What we have to understand is that there's a difference between um, what we ought to regard uh, as uh, Islam, the religion, where, you know, which is, which is something that is um, adhered to by, you know, many, many, many uh, patriotic American Muslims uh, who have no desire whatsoever to have, uh, you know, a United States that's uh, structured like the, the totalitarian societies that uh, a lot of them either, you know, left or uh, reject for their own reasons. Um, so we have to distinguish that from this political uh, Islamist ideology that is rooted in Islamic doctrine and a very literal interpretation of it, and that rejects a division between uh, church and state or between mosque and state. That ideology is, it has a religious component, but it's a political ideology overwhelmingly, and it ought to be dealt with as one. Uh, and we should stop, at, you know, a public official should stop you know, trying to label it as something that it isn't. It's a, it's a political totalitarian conquest ideology that has certain religious elements to it. Uh, but the important thing from our perspective is it's like any other political ideology that competes and has animus toward the West. And we have to see ourselves as in competition with it and needing to defeat it rather than trying to figure out how we can accommodate it under the, you know, under the auspices of uh, our commitment to religious liberty. Because overwhelmingly, it, it's not a religious doctrine. The political aspect of it is overwhelmingly um, a, a totalitarian political doctrine, and we shouldn't, just because it has a few religious elements to it, lose sight of the bigger picture. So if you were put in charge of the Department of Homeland Security tomorrow and didn't have political constraints, what would be some of the changes that you would recommend and implement? Well, as somebody who opposed the creation of the Department of <laughs> Homeland Security, I'd probably start out by trying to bring Abolish my own agency, department to an end um, and, re and reassign um, the deck chairs on the Titanic back to places that... Uh, you know, back to agencies that made more sense to the extent you wouldn't want to roll up a bunch of those as well. But I, I do think that, you know, we have to have a, we have to have a domestic national security strategy that works hand-in-hand -hand with um, the international strategy because the, the uh, while we obviously have to have different laws and different protections for Americans within the United States, um, the threat that we're dealing with is a is a transborder threat. It's a transcontinental threat, uh, and we have to recognize the uh, you know its ability uh, to, to threaten us from within and without. So we have to recognize the international and uh, domestic coordination of the threat. I think that the the biggest big-picture corrections that 
we would have to make for purposes of our security overall is to stop making it politically incorrect uh, to acknowledge and form policy around the concept that the threat to us is driven by an ideology. It's not caused by American policy. It's not caused by all these various pretexts that, uh, that are offered for it. It's not caused by Israel or Guantanamo Bay or uh, military commissions or you know, whatever the, the uh, pretext offered on offer is this week. Um, it, it's caused by an ideology, and we have to we have to deal with that. Um, we have to get a grip on what the protection our uh, our First Amendment gives, or on what is the protection the the limit of the protection that our First Amendment gives to incitement to violence, which. Um, is is not only um, uh, you know greatly threatening in terms of um, the call for violence in modern circumstances with modern weapons where it takes you know fewer and fewer people to project less and less power, uh, but there ought to be some distinction between the protection that we afford to uh, non-Americans operating outside the United States. Uh, versus uh, what we have to put up with uh, from Americans in our country under the First Amendment. Um, to be a little more concrete about this, um, during the Cold War, uh, and particularly after in the, in the period after the Second World War, even during the Second World War, uh, we had laws on the books and, uh, and, and doctrine that agencies acted under, which made it much easier for the government to keep out of our country um, people who were wedded to anti-American ideology, communism uh, in particular, um, even if they hadn't been attached to any particular acts of, uh, of violence or, or preparations for violence. We've made it much harder uh, since the 1970s to keep people out of the country who, you know, want to basically come into the country for the purpose of radically changing the country. And we've done that on the theory that, you know, it's, it's uh, free speech and we shouldn't be afraid to hear these ideas. Um, you know, number one, I don't think calling for the overthrow of the United States, whether it's done by communists or, or jihadists, is, you know, an idea that is as worthy of uh, protection as other political expression. Uh, and to the extent that it is uh, or, or does warrant some First Amendment protection, we already have plenty of people expressing that view who are here already, some of whom are Americans uh, and have, uh, you know, more robust First Amendment rights than non-Americans outside the United States. So my point is that we have to get better about keeping people who are non-Americans and who are threatening to our country and, you know, want to come here in order to bring it down rather than participate in its flourishing. Um, we have to be we have to be more vigilant uh, and more determined about keeping those people out of the country. 
you've been very critical of Rand Paul and others on the Patriot Act and in particular Section 215. So first, make your best case for why Section 215 should stand and then explain why those afraid of a government that classifies conservatives, Tea Partiers, libertarians as right-wing extremists that as the real problem as opposed to jihadists that those people should trust the power of section 215 in this government's hands uh, great questions both i think first <clears throat> there's two aspects that make the metadata program worthy of being kept uh, the first is that the purpose of the program notwithstanding all of the narrative about how it's dubious whether it's um, whether it's actually stopped any particular uh, terrorist attack that was planned. The, the main purpose of the program is to enable us to map organizations to try to figure out who are or which people are in uh, the network of a cell and you know its surrounding support network, and to do our best to try to to drown or, or, uh, or, or squeeze and make uh, disappear the funding channels and the other avenues of material support to the terrorist organizations. So it's, it's more of a mapping remedy than it is a, a tool that's designed to stop terrorist attacks. Naturally, we'd love to, for it to uh, perform that function too, but I think people are misinformed about the way that uh, that intelligence works. It's kind of like, uh, you know, my best analogy to it would be uh, in a trial, especially a trial that's based on circumstantial evidence, which, uh, you know, for prosecutors, circumstantial cases are sometimes the, the most compelling cases because they're not, you know, they're not based on, uh, they don't rise and fall on witnesses with access to crime and, and that sort of thing. It's, you know, it's a million little pieces that all point toward guilt. But the point is that, um, Intelligence is a mosaic, just like evidence is a mosaic, and it's rare that you're able to say that one single piece of it um, was, you know, the critical thing um, that was in the nature of a smoking gun and that established guilt and that established that a terrorist attack was about to take place. Uh, it's, it's, this, this program uh, is one tool in an array of tools that are designed to give us a maximal amount of information uh, about who is in a jihadist network. And in a time when, particularly under the Obama administration rules, we're treating terrorism more like a law enforcement problem than a national security problem, and therefore uh, we're not only, you know, Mirandizing people who get captured, we've the, this administration has so... Uh, uh, screwed up, I guess, is as good a word as any, or good a phrase as any for it. They've so screwed up um, the notion of detaining people under the laws of war. You know, they don't want to have anyone in Gitmo. They don't, because they're wedded to the law enforcement approach, they don't want to detain people indefinitely so that we can use them and exploit them for uh, intelligence purposes. So, that avenue of intelligence is drying up, and that's among the most important. That is the, the information that you get from captured terrorists. If you're going to dry that up, you don't really, you can't afford to be cavalier 
about the other things that you might be getting information from. And this program uh, is one of those things. I might feel differently about it if I thought it was anything other than a trivial uh, uh, intrusion on personal privacy. But the, the intrusion that it actually is has been exponentially overblown by the critics. This is a program that doesn't even include identifying information about people. The only thing that's in the data bank is telephone numbers. To them, you're not, a, you're not Ben, you're a phone number. And the only thing that the program can tell us is which numbers call which numbers at which time and when and for how long. So, you know, the thought that this is domestic spying, the closer you get to accurate information about the program, the more absurd that that uh, that prospect uh, becomes. Um, do people trust it? Um, you know, ultimately, all intelligence programs come down to how much you can trust the government. And in an era like we're in, where you have an imperial and lawless administration, it becomes more and more difficult to trust the government with anything, let alone intelligence programs, because by their nature, uh, a lot of what goes on has to go on in secret. But the reason I trust this program compared to other um, aspects of the Obama administration or other bureaucracies that the Obama administration has abused is that this is not a unilateral executive branch show. When the Obama administration uses the IRS to go after conservative critics of the president, what you're dealing with is an agency that is acting completely uh, at the whim and at the direction of superiors in the executive branch. Because of the controversy over the Patriot Act from the beginning of it and, and the collection of information under the Patriot Act, very strong oversight was written into the law. So that, for example, prior to 1978, the executive branch did uh, uh, intelligence collection against foreign threats to national security completely unilaterally. Uh, it didn't. It was. It would be preposterous to think that you'd even have to go to a court for uh, permission. After 1978, uh, Congress required the executive branch to go to court. And since 1978, and certainly since 9/11, the participation of the courts in national security and in intelligence collection uh, has been ratcheted up uh, to a fairly well. And in this particular program, what they've done is they've taken information which is not constitutionally protected, that is just your, the information about your phone calls, not, not the contents of the phone calls and not even your own identity. Uh, they have only allowed the government to collect it, uh, not to scrutinize it as they collect it. Uh, they have to get judicial permission in order to collect it in the first place, and then if they want to do more, they have to go back to a judge uh, and show cause for why they should be able to scrutinize some of the numbers. There are other protections that are, uh, that are in place that force them to uh, get rid of data every, I think it's uh, five years. They're allowed to hold it, and then they have to purge it. Also in place to minimize the possibility that innocent people are going to be swept up in terrorism investigations, which I think is based on the, the data that we have about the way the program has been used, that's a minimal uh, threat anyhow. I think uh, 
you know, there was one year where uh, there were all of about 300 uh, inquiries into the database, uh, notwithstanding that it had collected millions and millions of records. So the, the chance that even your phone number, not your name, your phone number will be uh, inquired into through this program is statistically almost uh, negligible to the point of almost uh, non-existent. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I guess it, 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 that's a long-winded way of saying it's a very minimal, I think, trivial intrusion on privacy, and it's a program that uh, potentially helps us map terrorist organizations that could threaten us. In a world in which we have Shia jihadists ascendant, the uh, Iran and its proxies, as well as Sunni jihadists, jihadists unleashed from Iraq through Libya, Syria, and elsewhere, what should America's foreign policy in the Middle East be? In other words, what is in our national interest and how do we achieve it given the current situation on the ground? Well, I think, you know, I think that we ought to remember that the divisions among these different jihadist groups and these different countries become more relevant um, mainly when we stay out of uh, things that we don't need to be involved in. Um, when the United States gets itself involved, uh, it has a lightning rod effect and those who wish us harm uh, tend to put their own uh, internecine rivalries and bloodlettings aside for, the, for what they regard as the greater good of attacking us. So, you know, I, I, I think it's obviously very important to understand who the different players are uh, in the region, but, you know, we shouldn't ever think that because they have differences among themselves that those differences are so profound that, they, that we're that we would be more likely to be seen by them as an ally uh, than an enemy, because as, as between us and, and themselves, they'd rather, um, as, as much animus as there may be, uh, they would often rather team up with themselves against us than join us, uh, you know, against individual groups of Islamists. So, um, I, to me, I, you know, I, I believed in and still believe in the Bush Doctrine uh, as it was articulated in the week after 9-11, which is you have to attack the jihadist organizations without geographic limitation wherever they operate. And, and here's the important part. You have to treat regimes that uh, provide material support to terrorists as if they themselves were terrorists. Now, it doesn't mean you have to invade every country but you have to be unambiguous in the fact that, that countries that facilitate terrorists are enemies of the United States. We don't regard them as allies. We don't regard them as potential allies until there's either regime change or they very uh, dramatically and convincingly change their behavior. Um, I don't think it makes any sense to jump into wars that have... Uh, geographical limitations like the way that we fought Afghanistan and Iraq when we're dealing with an enemy that regards the battlefield as global and doesn't really, you know, th th this is not an enemy that is wedded to the, you know, uh, post-Westphalian system of nation-states. 
and anybody who thinks otherwise ought to, ought to have a look at, you know, what used to be Iraq and Syria, which doesn't even have, you know, a, a sensible map that you can draw of it anymore. Um, you mentioned, you know, the difference, the Sunni groups and the Shiite groups. I, I point out to people all the time that, uh, you know, Iran, which is the most important Shiite country in the world, uh, the regime there was a sponsor of Al-Qaeda, the most important Sunni terrorist group, up, at least up until recently, um, since the early 1990s. Uh, again, demonstrating that whatever differences they have between themselves, they work together against the United States. So I don't think it makes sense for us to make a national security on the premise that uh, you know, Sunni and Shiite groups um, that are hostile to the United States are uh, are inevitably hostile to each other because the fact is they team up when uh, when we're on the field, so to speak. Uh, I, and I think that you have to have you you can't make a strategy for how to deal with ISIS and Al Qaeda uh, and Hezbollah and Hamas and the other uh, you know the varying pieces in this jihadist mosaic unless you deal with Iran. Uh, Iran is the problem behind a great deal of this. And to try to deal with these terrorist groups in one country at a time when they're being facilitated by Iran and, you know, allow to have a situation go on where we know that Iran is fueling insurgencies in, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan, and yet we convey to the Iranians that their territory is sacrosanct and we're not going to take any action uh, despite the fact that they're killing our troops. That's not an acceptable way to fight. So, you know, I think that either we, we make a sensible plan to defeat this threat and then implement it, or we should stay out of it because it's irresponsible to put our troops uh, in harm's way the way we're doing it now with these you know, these very restrictive uh, rules of engagement and no real prospect for defeating the enemy. If we're going to get in this, we should get in it to win, uh, and we should treat everybody who's an enemy as an enemy. On that sunny note, the name of the book is Islam and Free Speech, and we've been speaking with its author, Andrew McCarthy. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate it. For more on this and other books, you can visit The Blaze Books at www.theblaze.com slash books, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash theblazebooks, and Twitter at theblazebooks. You can follow me on Twitter at bhweingarten.